This is the weekend edition of the Core Report. Hello and welcome. New studies have put the growing Indian consumer market at about 100 million. Now, the question, of course, is how big is the Indian consumption universe, if you want to call it that? How much has it grown? What is the real buying power? And what's changed, more importantly, and also what's not changed? To discuss this, I'm joined today by Harish Chavla, partner at True North, one of India's most experienced and respected private equity funds. Now, Harish has been following the consumption space very closely, both as an investor and as an observer and a writer in the past, and has sort of successfully segmented what India's consuming class is like and how we should better understand it, particularly from two or three points of view. One is, let's say, for someone who's trying to get a lay of the land. Second is, if you're launching a business into this space, how should you be looking at it? And equally, what are the mistakes that you could make? And also at a time like this, when perhaps there is a little more hype than reality, how should we be segregating literally the wheat from the chaff? So to discuss all of this, I'm happy to be joined once again by Harish. Thank you so much on the Core Reports Weekend Edition. So Harish, thank you so much. And let me start by asking you very broadly, you know, when we look at the segmenting of the consumer and all that, and we'll get into some detail on that, but what's an anecdote that you've seen or what's an anecdote that comes to your mind and from your own experience on how this market has evolved and changed? When I say market, I mean the consumer in a very broad sense. Great to meet you again. I think one of the biggest anecdotes one has seen is this, and I've written about it a bit in 2016, when you go back to the India 1, 2, 3 story. One of the big anecdotes is when you see India was going to be a place where modern retailing was going to take off, you know. We had unorganized retail, we had Kirana stores. And I'd even then talked about that beating a Kirana retailer is very difficult because he can service you in a way that no organized player can. And that story is virtually played out in the same way. Organized retail has really not taken off in India after so many years. And it's serving only India too. Actually, if you look at retailer, let's say Dmart, I mean, massively successful company, brilliantly run business. But who does it serve? The India one customer and the customer that you know the Goldman Sachs report talks about or all the fluent Indian reports talk about does not end up going to a DMART. So they've all gone to Blinkets, the Instamart, the big baskets, or they're going to reorganize Kiryana shops that have reinvented themselves, have got massive self-serve stores, or even grocery chains, which are, you know, let's say, nature's basket kind of, uh, which are actually very small. But if you see what's happened here, that the game to be played at the top of the pyramid is very different to be played in the middle of the pyramid. And the bottom of the pyramid is continuing to be a challenge for us. It's a massive base of essentially non-consumers. They don't really participate in the economy. But as you see what's happened really, everybody thought that India 2 will become India 1 and India 1 will go to modern retailing. But the other thing around has happened that companies realize that India 2 needs bulk discounts. They are trying to live on a budget. They need to save money. And that's where Dimash's success story is playing out, actually. For those who are listening and may not have heard you before, what is India 1, 2 and 3? See, India 1, 2 and 3 are virtually, when you look at India as a market, you know, most markets in the world are homogeneous. India is a very heterogeneous market in multiple manners. You know, and the way a family that's been brought up conservatively in, let's say, south of India will behave versus a Punjabi family in the north are very different, even though they have the same level of income. So that's one difference in how they consume. The second difference is that we behave and act like very three different countries. The bottom is actually sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, virtually trying to subsist 
and stay alive and survive. And we've seen how they need to be actually supported. Like we have a food gain program food, for food programs, yeah. DBTs, you know, yeah. many other rural things. employment yeah, guarantee. And, and we've done an excellent job of raising them out of poverty, but they still are not able to climb any ladder. The ladder is not even visible to them. And then there is India too, which behaves like a middle income country actually. And that's what middle India is all about. And there is India one that behaves like it's living in Europe. I mean, and the amazing thing is that these are not separated geographically. In the same city, we are in Bombay and we see, you know, 80-story skyscrapers in next to the Chawls and next to the Hutments, actually. So India 1, India 2, India 3 are actually all together in one melting pot in the city. So you people get off from their BMWs and Mercedes and go to a five-star hotel and their, their chauffeur is probably an India 2 person who's got his family, uh, he's earning about between 25 to 35,000 rupees a month, probably has an earning child as well who's contributing their family income. And then there is somebody standing on the side of the road who's unable to get a meal. Right. Okay. So now there are projections about this affluent India, as we call it, or the $10,000 per capita income. So break that down from your perspective and the transition that you've been seeing or not seeing in the last eight years. So one of the challenges I have with these reports is that per capita is a phenomena is not relevant in India. We don't have individual spending, individuals buying. We should be doing per capita household actually or per household income. That's the one big difference that... So therefore, the number is never clear. So suppose the per capita income is let's say $10,000 or 8 lakh rupees, right? Now, if it's one single individual, that individual's disposable income may be fully discretionary income maybe that they'll spend on their food and their rent and the utilities and maybe let's say 2 lakh rupees is the disposable income. The moment this is a family and now you apply the per capita metric to it and you say, okay, there are two earning members in it, that income becomes 16 lakhs. The cost of living doesn't change. The disposable income therefore suddenly jumps from 2 lakhs to probably 8 or 10 lakhs and it's a 4x jump. So how the household behaves is what is actually very important for us. And the household is the unit of measurement that we should have in India. And this is that household that actually allowed us to get through COVID as well. Because everybody had a mechanism by which they could depend on somebody else to get them through these struggles that we went through as a nation during that time. And that the resilience of that household is what keeps our economy going. That there is some or other manner in which nobody is left alone. They have either the family or the extended family to look after them. So, and I think India is unique in that sense that nowhere in the world does the household unit still survive, stay together. I mean, have you seen disintegration of that in the West as economic progress happened? China has a different problem with the household They probably because of the single child policy, which has now really led to a planned disintegration in that sense, that the household unit is itself not very robust and resilient. I think India stands out as a unique example of a household that has stayed together. And actually now, despite multiple generations living together with very different aspirations and lifestyles, actually, it's actually continuing to be integrated. And that actually goes down to, is something that nowhere in the world it's been seen, actually. But computationally, from saying 100 million people with $10,000 versus, let's say, 25 million or 30 million household units with, let's say, $40,000, how does that change things? So it changes the spending patterns completely. You know what I'm saying? The confidence of the household could be very different from the confidence of the individual. See, finally, our economies are a function of how much confidence people have in spending. And I think that's one of the biggest metrics of how well 
an economy does as people get more confidence in their employment, in their future cash flows that are likely to happen, they end up spending and that in a sense creates a virtuous cycle of growth for the whole economy. So I think for us it's important to understand from 30-40 million households that have the money to spend are paying bulk of the taxes are also consuming a bulk of one of the other policies that we have is that there are I call it the rule of 5 to 50 now. 5% of these households contribute to 50% of consumption in many categories. So it's 5% of people who order 50% from Zomato, 5% of people or 1% of people which take 50% of the flights. So when you look at it, there is even higher concentration actually, even in that smaller pyramid. So it's an extremely dense pyramid on top, in the top, let's say 1%, and the rest, let's say 9-10%, which we are talking about, 300 million households, Roughly 30 million of them affluent, earning well and spending well. But even in those, there is a question of frequency, which at the top is very high. So the first, let's say 3-4 million households contribute to 40-50% of many category, affluent category spends. Actually. Right. So we're going to talk about trajectory because that's the important thing. But I'll come to that later. To look at two or three things in that India 1 and 2 and perhaps 3 as well. So one is the growth of credit. And the second, of course, is premiumization. But we'll come to premiumization in a moment. Let's talk about credit and how that's changed or fueled consumption. First, at the India level, what has happened? I think between the last decade, what have we seen? We've seen a GST being implemented. We have seen demonetization, which led to rapid digitization in a sense. We saw COVID come in and we saw UPI and Jandhan and all these projects get some shape. What has really happened at India is that you can almost see the working capital cycle of India has become faster. So in a sense, you're seeing growth happen because we are faster as an economy in some sense that money is moving faster, goods are moving faster. And there is a ripple effect on everything that happens. That's one side of the story. That's internal. Externally, we are seeing that China's, let's say, challenges in COVID and therefore on the global stage have allowed some, let's say, movement of focus on India and therefore investments in India. We've seen startup China funding plus one. Yeah, China plus one. We've seen startup funding in billions of dollars pour in. Now, whether those startups survived or not, that money actually came in. It helped people buy cars. It helped people get jobs. It allowed people to buy apartments. So that credit flow that happened in terms of an equity flow for India, your companies has started speeding up. Your company got equity flows. And that also gave in confidence for the credit flow to happen. So Confidence led people to buy on credit. And when you buy on credit, you know, money is seen, you know, by people as an exchange of value, but also an exchange of time. If I can be given a loan to buy a Swift Desire car or a Kia Seltos or a Sonnet or whatever, five years before I could afford it, what really has happened, you advance that demand. When you advance that demand, that car starts selling. The car starts selling, it generates employment. It generates a bunch of flows from my money. So I think that's what we're seeing. And we have seen historically two things have happened. Household savings are at a 50-year low, actually. And household liabilities are up by 50% over last year. So credit card spending, in fact, I think what we've gone to the other extreme, that when you go and buy, let's say, a refrigerator, the cash price you pay is lower than the EMI price. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy phenomenon happening here. I'm, I'm sure RBI has issued warnings on it. So we are at that unique place where we are borrowing. India 2 is borrowing, actually. India 1 doesn't need to borrow. India too is borrowing from its future and has the confidence to borrow and is willing to work for it. So they've also seen the incomes go up. They see a bright future for them. 
and that borrowing is resulting in production increases today, which we're all seeing consumption increasing today. And of course, the profit from that consumption, as we've seen our economies, goes to India 1. So India 1 progresses by India 2 becoming more aspirational, taking more credit and consuming more. So that cycle is like this when you talk about trickle-down economics, probably some part of the cycle is... So that credit, let me... You talked about, you know, the incentive to use a credit card versus paying in cash at this point. But is there a subsidization happening somewhere, either by the finance company or something? Or you feel that this is how the volume... As a producer, if I can increase my MRP and package in a bundle in a discount for buying via credit, I will see sales go up. So I think that some part of that is happening. Should excess of it is bad, of course, because then you're allowing people who actually cannot afford to take that credit and will probably default on it. In fact, credit card defaults are up at some multi-year high at I think 2.75% or something like that. So I think is credit good for us? Absolutely. I mean, and there's no question that as a country, we need to allow people to borrow and spend on consumption today because that gets us on a different production orbit. In fact, if anything, housing loans should be even further discounted because once a person buys a house, the knock-on effect on purchase is, you know, you buy furniture, you buy a car, you want to buy other appliances, the whole economy starts moving. So the only thing is whether the credit is affordable and how it's recovered. I think those are some of the challenges we have to think about. So you talked about confidence. Now, confidence usually comes from Maybe it comes from two or three things. But one thing that I think most economists also agree is that there's a wealth effect or a feeling of wealth, which is again stock markets, gold. So two questions here. So one is, do you agree with that? And to what extent is that driving confidence? And secondly, what's the downside of it? So I think the wealth effect in India has gone up dramatically because of land prices going up, especially in the rural areas as well. Because of urbanization, the towns have become larger. Look at a city like Pune. Bombay can't unfortunately expand, but cities expanded like a balloon. It's grown on all sides. So therefore, that land has become valuable for people. Gold has gone up and then the stock markets are at their all-time highs actually now. So the wealth effect has been very positive. Now, the only challenge with the wealth effect is when the asset prices cool off, does that leave people in a bad shape? And therefore, that comes down to the amount of leverage you have. The good part is Indian households are not very highly leveraged, actually. So unlike America, where a wealth effect can have many more effects on the economy and spending, Indian households are not really leveraged at all. So I think debt coverage of an Indian household is very good. So I don't think we have a challenge there that this wealth effect is going to have any deleterious or any bad effects on us right now. I think controlling credit, which you know you already know that RBI started unsecured lending, actually, which is what a lot of equity money blew up by startups who are fintech who gave money away for free virtually to consumers. And of course, they will, I mean, they're paying and have paid for that losses. So that money has gone to consumption. But I think unsecured lending will be a challenge that will continue for some time. And we'll have to probably tighten that as we go along. So the Reserve Bank has already tightened that and is now hinting that it will tighten further because it's alert on this phenomenon. But do you feel that this is something that can, you know, shift the numbers as in, for example, I mean, without getting into whether how many millions or tens of millions, but there were a whole bunch of people who were using credit cards, yeah, or using BNPL or just swiping their cards or even on their phone and getting a loan and then, you know, buying something immediately. But is that something that could get shaken up or would it get substituted by something else? It'll get substituted by something else. I think what is really happening is that, as I said, the one phenomena that has happened all over the world is that 
we've come through extremely stressed one year in COVID. Everything that is normal looks great right now. So I think the desire to spend has been triggered. Desire to have experience. Look at the airports, they're full. The hotels are full. The malls are full. The travel that Indians are doing all over India and globally is massive. So I think there is a certain effect that, you know, normalcy looks great now. And therefore, let me spend. That's one more element in the confidence. So I think that will not go away. The second thing that happened is that exposure from the mobile phone. See, that's become the great unifier. So, you know, it's no longer necessary to be in a big town to get access to the goods and services that the people in the big towns get. So I think that democratization is a thing that's ongoing right now in India. So you will have consumption kicking in from many. Therefore, there was never any, India is very complex to understand. Multiple levers are working in different manners at any point of time. So I think that analysis is very difficult to do. As long as we don't give any shocks to the economy, I mean, that's the bigger thing. We should be continuing to grow very well. Right. And I'll come back to premiumization and trajectory in a bit. But let's look at the bottom end now. So, you know, if we look at, let's say, results from companies like Levers, not so good. Nest Companies like Nestle have done a little better because maybe they're more premium and we'll come to that. So what's your sense on the rural? Because when I talk to analysts also, they all seem to have switched off on anything that is rural focused. See, I think what we have to realize is that food inflation and general inflation has been very high actually. And that affects them much more disproportionately than does you and me. So I think that's what is happening at India 3 actually, or India at the bottom of the two, where they are struggling actually to manage their budgets. And I think that phenomena is a function of reasonably high unemployment and lower trickle-down happening there. So India 1 flows down to India 2. At India 2 to India 3, what is the trickle-down? But India 3 is also is and was or has always been a market, let's say for large companies like Levers or any large consumer product company. So why are they not able to address it as well as they were earlier, assuming that people still want to consume soaps and personal care and all of that, using Levers as an example? Yeah, I think it's function of capacity to pay and the amount they consume. So both. So they are not willing to pay very high prices and costs have actually gone up for them. So they are actually thinking of how to limit consumption, how to downgrade a bit. The rest of India, India 2 and India 3 are on an upgrade cycle. I need not regular yogurt, I need A plus yogurt, then I need an epigama yogurt or whatever. I need to have Greek yogurt and then I need to have whatever. You can't have vegan yogurt, but whatever else is the fad in the world. So that upgrade cycle is on and that's a function of lifestyle changes, the information they're getting actually on Instagram, on Facebook. I think we are globally connected. So you launch an oat milk in America and it reaches in, in a year on Indian shelves. We don't even know what oats were before the you know Americans talked about it or now there is some rice milk that's coming. So unfortunately that, you know, the India 3 is actually isolated in that sense because the ladder is missing and that's I think the key challenge for the economy as to how to create social structures and employment opportunities, actually. That's why vocational training or something like that to make them part of the larger economy. We are not leaving them behind because clearly there are social schemes designed for them. So in a sense, they are surviving. But how do you kickstart their aspiration and remove their fear of participating and taking off the growth that we are seeing? All of us are a children of that, actually. All of us are, you know, I'm sure when you began your career or I began, you know, 25, 30 years ago, where we thought we would reach, I mean, we reached far ahead of what our imagination could have allowed. And therefore, that privilege we've had, and we should be thankful because actually what you're seeing is what happened in China about 30, 40 years ago is happening in India now. That we are at our societal level are seeing compression of 50 years of growth into 20. India 3 needs to see some form of that actually. And that 
is a challenge which has to be solved by other things than you know doing a scheme. Right. And from a marketer's point of view, so there was supposed to be a fortune at the bottom of the pyramid, and I'm sure there still is. This is a very specific example now. Let's say companies who you would invest in. Would you think that they have opportunities still either in the consumption space, consumer space, discretionary space at the bottom of the pyramid? My sense is that companies that are solely operating on the bottom of the pyramid, I think there'll be a challenge getting funding. You know, and we're seeing some of that play out in the startups that tried to go there as well. So I think India 1, India 2 is where the market where monetization will happen. India 3 is where, you know, you have to sanitize everything. And there is a question of whether that is in margin accretive to the business. So I think that question still stays. That market will get added on. I don't know how many companies will say, okay, I want to address that market because the challenges of reaching them are massive. The challenges of making money from that market are massive. So till those people get employed, actually, in some manner, and they start generating incomes on their own, and therefore you have getting them schemes which help them reach a certain level and then they generate income. That's when it will become a market. Right. Okay, so let's come now to the top end. So, premiumization is the word of 2023, I think. Tell us about how you see this word and how what it represents and what's changed and not in contrast to previous years. Yeah, so my sense is that everybody is finding power users in every category. And every company realizes that there is margin available to afford a international lifestyle for the top end of the market, actually. It's almost not Indian in that sense. In the way they demand their service in the way they expect product quality and their willingness to pay. So therefore, you can go to a Starbucks and pay 300 rupees for a coffee. We know that it costs like maybe 15 bucks to make it, right? But the service, the ambience. So my sense is that the way a company would think is that if I premiumize, it helps my brand send the signals and then I'll figure out how to make a mid-range offering. I think that's how most brands will end up doing. And we've seen success like a company like Cred. For example, I mean, in a market which is very tough for fintech companies has put together an offering for the top end of credit card users. Or if you look at what Air Vistara is doing compared to what Indigo did. So I think you're seeing these companies start developing models saying that there is a certain high paying and high frequency customer. Remember that frequency is very, very important because that suddenly changes all the maths. It's very good to say that there are 150 million customers. How many of them are actually buying frequently? And the frequent buyers are the ones that are dedicated and leave profit on the table. So I think every category you're finding this shift, you know, in foods that's happening, you're seeing a bunch of brands coming up or the existing brands trying to premiumize and modernize. You're seeing that in retailing. I mean, look at what grocery stores have done. The Kirana store, which we thought will get pummeled by the entry of technology and modern trade, survives and thriving. I mean, you see those Chaps are buying the next door shop and making the shops bigger. And they know that they can serve customers well and make money. So yeah. I think it's happening across Yeah, and segments. there are some good examples. So there are clothes uh, as well. I mean, if you yeah. look at apparel, again, a company like Trent discovered Zudio as a model, right? Can I serve India 2 or India 2.5, let me call it that, somewhere there, with a very good value for money offering while keeping the whole look and feel international. So international at Indian prices is a big segment that's coming up. So it's actually, the pyramid is bloating in the middle for the clever player. Demart also, it's a bloat in the middle. You know, let me not try and run a premium store in South Bombay. In fact, they hardly have any stores in Bombay actually. Let me go to the cities that are emerging where customers don't have relationship with Kirana stores and they'll come to the discount retail shop 
So therefore, there is a pyramid as like a peak at the top. There's a big box in the middle, which is India too, which has the money, which has the confidence again to spend, confidence to borrow, and is willing to spend. Let's say the path is a hundred million of ten thousand dollars. What you're saying is thirty million effectively households. Now, as you look ahead, both in the context of premiumization and now the trajectory, what is likely to change versus what has changed in the last seven or eight years that you've been observing and writing about this sort of new consumer and the new power consumer? So, I think at the top, the numbers will stay small. And numbers will stay small, the malls will come up for them. They are paying, let's say, 800 rupees for a movie ticket. They are paying 350 rupees for a popcorn. You know, that market is there. It's high frequency. So you're saying the percentage will remain the same or the numbers will remain the same? My sense is that the percentage will remain the same. My numbers may grow, but not marginally. The, the big, the middle is going to bloat. Mm. So the 6-7% of the population, give or take. 6-7% uh, of the population lives this affluent lifestyle. We, we will all pander to their wishes. I call them, they are assisted living at 20. I mean, they, they don't want to get out of their couches. They press buttons to get everything they want. Everything is available to them. And whether it's a global product or Indian product, lands up in their hands in about 8 minutes. So that audience is small. They'll continue to spend and they will trickle down. They'll earn money from the work that the rest do as well. So that, my sense is the top is about a $1.5 trillion account. Not small. The size is big. So it's $1.5 trillion on the top, $1.5 trillion in the middle and maybe very little left at the bottom actually. If you look at it, if you separate them as countries, the middle is where, see, again, you're seeing a lot of signs from entrepreneurs doing well. See, earlier, before GST, you had a number one do well, number two do well, number three company would, let's say, suffer or just barely make money and the rest of the companies would lose money or compete with unorganized guys. The unorganized market really has been, is getting wiped out. So that formalization benefits are really coming to the middle India. So formalization the logistics improvements that are happening because GST, the one tax system, the lending that's happening to them, secured lending also, they're the ones who are buying the houses or building homes. So that India to level is where we can see massive growth coming. And hopefully we will even give them more credit to make sure that they can, you know, really generate demand. Right. So let's touch upon technology. Again, an aspect or a lens you use a lot. So how is technology? Of course, technology is all in. And when I say technology, I include, let's say, payments and speed of payments, which you also touched upon. How is that going to change or likely to change this trajectory as we are looking at it? See, I think one of the biggest things we end up talking and lamenting about is participation of women in India, you know, and that our economy will only transform when that happens. Actually, one of the things that technology has done is really empowered the women in the house. I don't think we see that as something that shows up in a metric anyway. But the housewife who's really supporting the rest of the household. Again, as I said, per capita is not the thing, per household. That household is thriving and surviving and is growing because she now is empowered because of technology. She can learn things on YouTube. She's seeing what's happening in the world. She knows how to dress, how to cook, how to, there are, how to manage money probably. So there is this big wave of the homemakers who have been empowered by technology who are able to run their household much better because they're well-informed. They're putting their kids through better schools. They're paying more attention to what the kids are studying in school. They have the confidence to do a parent-teacher meeting. That aspect of empowerment of women and becoming productive in that sense. I mean, their productivity is hidden, but they hold the whole household together. 
is not being seen. So I think there are other aspects of technology that all of us have talked about that it made, you know, it democratized everything. So person in Bombay, it's actually changed grooming, by the way. If you look at, at the market, the riders who come deliver to you probably have got better haircuts than you and me. They groom better. So you're seeing the salons and spa come up everywhere. And that's a function of how as economies grow, personal grooming becomes a big market. And you're seeing many players... You uh, sound like you're investing in something no, in that I'm space. I'm not investing <laughs> in that. Well, I'm saying that some of these are the signals of large-scale economic growth that people start spending on themselves, how they look and feel, how they appear. You're seeing all that play out. But I thought, that, therefore, that's a function of technology. You see well-dressed people, you want to look like them, right? So that's one. But the role of the woman in the house and how the phone has allowed her to see and open her eyes and then use those learnings back in the home to either make decisions or participate more in decisions is lost actually. It's not showing up anywhere. So when we talked about premiumization, companies that we've seen, or at least I've seen, are existing companies who perhaps do not have premium brands but have now moved into that space or are now increasingly, whether it's service products or product products. Others, I'm assuming, would try to enter at that level. Now, if you were to put a slightly more marketeer's lens uh, rather than the producer's lens, do you think it's that easy to even to crack this space? I mean, as you well, know, so because one of the challenges we've seen, and we'll see a lot of destruction in D2C brands. You know, that's the see what what happens is technology is like a drug. You can access, I can send a WhatsApp, and if I put a clever enough a message, it can reach 300 million people in the next five minutes, right? People can circulate it and can go everywhere. The unfortunate part of it is that it's very expensive to reach them. That the gatekeepers are sitting between Google and Facebook. They take chunk of money out of the system. So, in fact, what is clear now is that you cannot launch, virtually launch a D2C brand for the middle Indian market because if your gross margins are not strong enough, you'll not be able to afford the rent that these platforms charge, including Amazon, including Flipkart. All of these marketplaces have a, yeah, have 30, a fee. 30% fee. 30, 40, 50% fee. And they're designed by the algorithms to actually knock the number one off and give the place to an, somebody else who's willing to pay more. So we are like lemmings in a sense. And I've written about that. We are like lemmings. The next guy is willing to pay more. Even on Swiggy Zomato, the new restaurant, if he's willing to play a higher charge, will get shown up in the algorithm higher. So in that sense, it's very difficult to survive in that market because the cost of acquisition of a customer is really high, which is why you see duopolies are forming actually in each of these segments that these are companies that got well-funded earlier. Of course, they've done a great execution job. But today, you can't imagine a third food delivery company, for example. Or you can't imagine a third, I mean, people are trying with, with some mobility. But these are difficult markets to get into. So the same challenge is there that if you think digital is the way to grow and that looks very enticing and then we've raised billions of dollars of VC money, it's actually a very tough market. And therefore, because you need good gross margins, you'll end up addressing India 1. India 1 is too small. So the unfortunate part of the Goldman Sachs story tells you two things. It says that we are a great market, right? But it also tells you why we are a small market. You know, just 60 million homes or 100 million people is a small market actually for what India has. We have 1.5 billion people. But also tells you the potential of the market is massive because there are 1.5 billion people waiting to join these 100 million actually at some point. So it's tougher to reach these people uh, only through technology. Right. So then the converse question therefore is, will people or should people then be thinking of offline? And how are the economics comparing today versus let's say a few years ago? You know, one of the things I call the digital medium is it's a handicapped medium. 
you just see an image, a few pixels, and you have to make a series of decisions based on the pixels you see in front of you. Offline has touch and feel, the kind of conversion rate. So imagine you 100 people walk into a store, probably 25-30 of them buy a product. 100 people walk into a website, 0.5% convert. So I mean, that's the reality of, because the rest of the signals of the product, the sensory signals are missing online, right? Therefore, on, on offline is a much better place to be. And But again, there are challenges there. The cost of setting up the offline networks, because they're such old traditional networks, there are no modern companies that have been built in that space, actually. Yeah, most of them have failed. It would be a bad thing for me to say, but or are going to fail, actually. Because the networks that the stores have and the net wholesale networks, the distribution networks are very, very expensive to build. And the entry barriers have been set by the incumbents. I mean, look at Nestle, Unilever, their distribution reach and control and the ability to actually, you know, put a big cost on a new entrant is extremely high. So you're saying for a brand that wants to challenge even on the slightly more premium side in, let's say, the food space, will find it difficult both offline as well as online. One online. for so cost, another for... Calibrating the expectation and trying to make money. See, the issue is that if you calibrate your expectations that I will reach 200 million people market and then you spend accordingly, you'll find it's a disaster. So I think which country you want to operate in has to be very clear to you. Where you win and then where you take footsteps slowly to get in is the way to think about it. I think you have to be very humble. Indian market is a tough... I think it's very simple. Just because you make a nice PowerPoint just because a trend has worked in the West does not mean anything actually. Of course, unfortunately, money has been flowing in and that's a big, let's say, shift that, I mean, again, we'll have the same exuberance eight, 10 years later, so it's a cycle. But I think at this moment, being humble and realizing that online is difficult, probably less difficult than offline, but offline itself is also very difficult. So I think that calibration needs to happen. Therefore, some companies are selling. See, companies have realized that if I build a growth product, create a great following, create word of mouth, fantastic equity with the India 1. When I need to go to India 2, I probably need to send to a larger player who is not willing to, who doesn't want either have the attention or the energy to be able to launch in a small segment. Yeah. And so we've seen see Tata's, yoga, for example, yeah, buying... Tata's the, buying yeah. Soulful or mm. Yoga Bar selling out to ITC. Or, you know, some of these companies will have to do that. So again, therefore, you have to design your company to have the structural margins that a bigger player feels that when they put sales and distribution, they will get growth. If your structural margins are negative or not so good, the bigger player also is not interested actually. Right. If you look ahead on the same trajectory, maybe a year or two, what are the one or two things that you feel are you know, going great and therefore very positive? And similarly, what are the one or two things that you feel we need to be careful or wary about? So my sense is that on the positive side, I think there is a you know, unlocking of the consumer's mind on, you know, buying new things. Therefore, I think there is a market, India is severely underbranded. So I think that is an opportunity that if you calibrate your expectations well, you know, brands will have extreme success because they'll be able to serve a certain set of target consumers, right? So I think that's a big market opportunity. And therefore, people who design their businesses around that and experiences as well. I think Indian consumers are desperately hungry for experiences. We live in cities that have very little places to go, right? So I think people who craft or merge product with experiences are going to make a good headway. On the downside, I think we are continuing to face this unemployment, unengaged, you know, massive young labor force. And I know we are trying many things. China Plus One is helping. The PLIs are helping. 
But I think a solid initiative is needed to make sure that, you know, that's the only hump left in us truly becoming where we need to go. So I think simplifying the laws, actually, I mean, if you look at what's happening, I mean, why can't we just give the Supreme Court $5 billion and tell them, you know, take the money and become digital and become current, set up the court system and make them speedier. I think the ease of doing business and we are doing many things on that front. But I think step jumps, can the income tax code be no longer than 200 pages, right? Can we simply rewrite the code as opposed to keep uh, yeah, yeah. rewrite the code and make sure that the you know system of contracts and the way you get justice. You look at how much assets are locked because of cases in the courts actually. So that all whole thing is lying unlocked. And then my sense is you'll find that the investment demand, which I think we're spending a lot of infrastructure on infrastructure, but till private enterprises set up to create capacity across the board, we won't be able to employ all these people. So I thought two things. If we can, let's say, for example, travel and tourism, again, instead of trying to do incremental things, can we decide to have, you know, 5x the number of tourists to India in, let's say, three years' time? Suddenly, that will generate a huge employment opportunity. And for that, the country itself is vibrant and every tourist in the world has India on its bucket list. But can we ease their coming here? Can we ease how they stay, what it costs them, how much fraud happens? All that. I'm saying, therefore, the opportunities are very clear. We just need to remove friction from our systems and that will solve a lot of our issues actually. As an investor, what are you looking at nowadays in 2024 if there is a theme? Oh, so I thought multiple themes in that sense. I think clearly technology changes that are happening. You know, my sense is that we will find several traditional businesses will find a way to modernize. So I think there are companies that are finding using technology to get ahead. So it could be in any segment. So it doesn't have to be a new business. So can we do an old business in a new way? I think that's one, let's say, because that the market is established. So nobody's trying to sell a concept. Like a car dealership, for example. Correct. Yeah. Or the second hand car business. I mean, invested in Spinny and you see how they've worked their experience out very differently. So it's an old business being done in a new way. And the other trend I see is the consumption pattern shift, actually, as you can see in the food, for example, food business I'm excited about. I think we want to see a complete change in how we eat what we eat and how we consume and how much we spend on food. And that's a multi-year trend. I mean, we no longer want the dal roti. We will have probably meals that are partly prepared that we get home, right? So there is a whole change in how we'll consume, let's say, food. So that's another trend I carefully look at. But largely, I think this is a low time for startup investment. So one is being more careful. This vintage will be a tough one, actually. Right. And perhaps a good time to study exactly yeah, what's study been exactly going on. exactly what's happening. Yeah, right. Harish, yeah. thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopsis or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in and thank you once again for listening.